Revelation chapter 11. I want to read to you a verse or two from another book of the Bible. This is from 1 Peter chapter 4. It says, for It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Time for judgment to begin at the household of God. I'd like to remind you, perhaps not every week, but uh, almost every week, that my perspective on the book of Revelation, as you have come to understand, is probably different than most that you have heard. You know, if you, if you uh, listen to R.C. Sproul, then you've encountered this before. Or if you listen to Doug Wilson or read any of his books, then you've encountered this view before. Namely, the view that most of the book of Revelation was fulfilled in A.D. 70 at the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, I don't think that everything in the book of Revelation was fulfilled at that time. I still believe that Jesus is going to return in person, in glory to the earth. And he will subdue all of his enemies and reward his people at that time. But I do believe that uh, the Bible calls what happened in A.D. 70 a returning of the Lord. And uh, one, of the th- one of the things that has driven me to this position are the clear statements made in chapters 1 and in chapters 22, the first and last chapters of the book, that the things written in the book are going to take place soon. And... Uh, Soon, in the eyes of men, does not mean two or three thousand years later. And Jesus said that many of the things that he predicted, which are echoed in the book of Revelation, would happen within the generation of those who were living at that time. And then uh, in in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. He says that once in chapter 1 and twice in chapter 22. So, Behold, I am coming soon. So taking all of those things into account leads me to the conclusion that when Jesus came in judgment upon the household of God, which at, for many years had been the people of Israel, and the people of Israel and their worship was focused on the city of Jerusalem, lead me to believe that Jesus came in judgment on the city of Jerusalem. We will see in my text today that uh, that is a, a very important step in the establishment of the eternal kingdom of God. And I'll just tell you ahead of time what I will probably repeat at the end, that in order for the kingdom of God to become universal, universal kingdom of God, and not just a Jewish kingdom, there were two very important things that had to happen. And the first thing was the sending of the Holy Spirit. That happened fairly soon after Jesus went back to heaven, within a couple of months. The second thing that needed to happen was the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem because that was going to be a a permanent distraction as long as the temple was there. I don't think that the Lord destroyed it uh, because it was just going to be a distraction, but because the sin of the people of Israel had reached its maturity And the patience of God was at an end. But I think it's worth remarking that he waited about 40 years after they crucified Jesus to pour out his judgment. 
And so even in that, we can see the ongoing patience of God, uh, giving them time to hear the preaching of the gospel from the apostles, to see the spread of the gospel among the Gentiles, and perhaps out of a sense of jealousy, as Paul says in in the book of Romans, perhaps out of a sense of jealousy to say, I want what those people have. I want the relationship with God that those people have. But they did not repent, and the words of Jesus came true. He said, the blood of all of the prophets from the time of Abel up until the very last martyrdom that we read of in the Hebrew Bible, the very, all of that is going to be charged to this generation. Now, chapter 11 starts off with, uh, my first point is, judgment begins at the household of God. And this household of God is represented by the temple at Jerusalem. Now, we're going to see John, uh, in his vision, he's given a, a measuring rod like a, like a staff. And he's going to measure the temple. But before I read that, let me just point out to you that measuring is a means of distinguishing. You may have never thought of it that way, but let me give you some illustrations because probably you're just thinking of a tape measure or a yardstick. So, uh, if you are driving down the highway where the speed limit is 70 and you're going 78 and you see a highway patrolman uh, up ahead, what do you do? Well, you slow down. Why? Because he's got a measuring device in that car. It's not a tape measure, but he's got a measuring device in that car, and he uses that measuring device to distinguish who's observing the speed limit from those who are breaking the speed limit. And if you're breaking the speed limit badly enough, then that highway patrolman will pull you over and give you a ticket. So measuring speed is a means of determining who is keeping the law and who is not. Or think about the story of Cinderella. Cinderella lost her slipper uh, as she was leaving the ball, but the prince wanted to find her, and so he went throughout the kingdom seeing whose foot could fit in that little tiny glass slipper. That was a measuring device, and it was to determine who was the true princess. It was to distinguish between all the others who might pretend to want to be the princess, but their feet couldn't fit in the measuring device. You see how measuring distinguishes? Several years ago, I was uh, fishing with a boy who was 10 or 11 years old, young fellow, and we were in a creek where we were just catching one bass after another, but they all were about 10 and a half or 11 inches. And you fishermen know that in order to keep a small mouth or a large mouth bass in Kentucky, he's got to be at least 12 inches. And so I was making this boy throw all these 11-inch fish back, and boy, was he angry with me. He was telling me, these are good eating size. We should keep these fish. I said, no, they've got to be 12 inches. And I, had, I had something there marked on my rod or something that would distinguish those that were legal from those that were illegal. And after we'd been fishing there for a while, there were two game wardens. I mean, we were out in the middle of nowhere. And these two game wardens came walking up to us, wanted to see my license. And, and uh, after that, I don't know if they checked our stringer or not. I don't know if we had anything on the stringer. But uh, 
after they left, boy, that, that boy looked at me with a sheepish grin. I said, you see, it was a good thing we threw those little fish back, wasn't it? Yeah, but how did we tell which were legal and which were illegal? We measured. And that is how measurement is used here. So let's look at uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Let's just start there. So this represents the Jews. Are all of the Jews non-believers? No, there are some Jews who really worship God acceptably. And so this is symbolic of saying those, those Jews who have received the Lord Jesus Christ and who are worshiping God in spirit and in truth, there's going to be a difference between them and those who are not. But the measuring represents this distinguishing between those who are true spiritual Jews and those who are merely physical Jews. But he says in verse 2, Do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, the the court outside the temple was a court that was allegedly for Gentiles who converted to Judaism. And so, on a first reading, you might say, well, if this is to distinguish true Jews from false Jews, then uh, isn't the Gentiles, are, are they now the, 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 the people that make up the kingdom of God? Is that why this is left out? I think I would take that position if it weren't for the word trample. Trample doesn't mean they're, they're there doing good things. It means that uh, they are they're there doing bad things. That's the implication of the word trampling. Jesus uses the same idea when he says that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so what's going on here is that I think that the judgment of the Gentile nations is delayed. This is a judgment. Judgment begins at the household of God. So this is a judgment against Israel. Later on, the Gentiles are going to be judged. In fact, there are some people who say that chapters up through chapters 11 are talking about judgment against Israel, and then beginning with chapter 12, it's judgment against the Roman Empire. I, I, I'm not sure about that yet. Uh, but uh, anyway, at this point, I can say that judgment against the Gentiles is at least delayed because he's not measuring the outer court of the Gentiles. And it says here that they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, this is the first time that we have encountered this measurement of time in the book of Revelation. But we'll see something similar in verse 3. So let's go ahead and look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So, first of all, we have 42 months. Next, we have 1,260 days, and then later on, twice, we have this measurement of time, time, times, and half a time. They all three refer to the same length of time. So, three and a half years using lunar months, which is what Israel used, three and a half years equals 1,260 days. And time is one year times 
is two years, and half a time is half a year. So all three of these denotations of time are the same time, we would just say three and a half years. Now it's interesting that uh, this time of the Gentiles is prophesied to be pretty exact three and a half years. Is there something in the war of, uh, of uh, Rome against the Jews that corresponds to this? Yes, as a matter of fact, there are two things that correspond to this. One thing is that the emperor Nero in the year 64, so in November of the year 64, he was responsible for a fire that burned much of Rome. And when he was suspected of being the arsonist, he shifted blame onto the Christians. And there began the first Roman persecution of the Christians. Up to that time, the primary perpetrators of persecution against the Christians had been the Jews. But beginning in November of 64, then Rome, under Nero, begins persecuting the Christians. And for three and a half years until June of 68, Nero continued to persecute the Christians. Just exactly 42 months, 1,260 days, and then Nero commits suicide. So that is one very remarkable prophecy here. The Gentiles are going to trample Uh, the holy city for 1,260 days, 42 months. And uh, and then there's another another very close similarity. Almost exact, the, the, the city of Jerusalem was under siege by the Romans for almost exactly 42 months. That culminated in the destruction of the city in A.D. 70. So they are not exactly coincident, but there is overlap between these two incidences that lasted three and a half years. And so the first part of this chapter has to do with the pending judgment, but the discerning judgment that begins at the household of God. Now, secondly, we move into God's Word, asserted, rejected, and vindicated. Those three things we find under these two witnesses. And so let's look again at, uh, at verse 3 when the Lord says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now just a second, I'll get to who I think they are. But notice first of all that there are two of them. What's significant about the number two? The Lord in His Word says that testimony will be confirmed by at least two witnesses. You can't condemn someone just on the basis of one witness. There have to be at least two. So there are two witnesses. And then notice also that they are clothed in sackcloth. Now your readers of the Bible will know that this is an indication of mourning or great sorrow. And so when people would be very sad, then they would take off their nice clothes and they would just put on uh, cloth that... Well, it wasn't as nice as the feed sacks that some of you dressed in when you were little boys and little girls, when your mamas maybe would make dresses for you or shirts for you out of feed sacks. I'd be interested if there's anybody in here. Any of you wear feed sack dresses? Yeah, yeah, I see a few people. Uh, 
that wore some feed sack stuff. My mother wore feed sack stuff. I, I don't think anybody under the age of 60 ever wore feed sack stuff. But, um, so, but it was, that was, there was some pretty nice cloth. In fact, the feed, the feed companies would deliberately make nice cloth because they knew that the women were using it for that purpose. But back in ancient Israel, it was just the, the junky stuff. If it would hold feed, then you could put it in there. And then people would put that on. Why? Well, I'm just so sad. I don't feel like wearing clothes and being merry at all, uh, wearing, wearing regular clothes. And so they would wear sackcloth and put ashes on their head. And so these, these prophets have a message of woe. Now, who are they? I think that uh, probably the better question is, what are they? Because I don't think that they are individuals. One reason that I think that they represent a class and not just two individuals is verse 7. Take a look at verse 7. It says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. You don't really make war on two people. You just kill two people. So the idea that the beast is making war against these two witnesses helps to lead me to the conclusion that these are not two literal persons like Moses and Elijah or like Peter and James. Both of those have been propounded as possibilities for who these people are. But I do think that Moses and Elijah are very good representatives of what I think these two witnesses stand for. What I think these two witnesses stand for is the testimony of the Old Testament prophets and the holy rulers. The Old Testament prophets and the holy rulers. Now, let's go back to the Old Testament, and I'll give you a good reason why I think this. Look in the book of Zechariah. All of uh, chapters 3 and 4 of Zechariah are relevant, but I'm just going to read a couple of verses from Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah is near the end of the Old Testament. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So the next to the last book in the Old Testament is the book of Zechariah. And in chapter 4, we read what the Lord says about a couple of people that he has already mentioned. So beginning in chapter 3, he talks about a high priest named Joshua, very good high priest. And the Lord speaks appreciatively of Joshua, the high priest. And then he speaks appreciatively of a political ruler, a guy named Zerubbabel. And uh, Zerubbabel was uh, used of the Lord to rebuild the temple. During the days after the <clears throat> Israel had been in exile and they came back to the land, God used Nehemiah to help build the walls and he used Zerubbabel to help build the temple. And uh, as a young Bible student, the way I kept those two straight was I just said, Nehemiah helped to build the walls up higher, and Zerubbabel built the temple. <clears throat> and uh, so we've got uh, Zerubbabel here. He is spoken of with great appreciation by the Lord. And after talking about Moses, uh, talking about uh, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, look at verse 10. Of chapter 4. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. I think it's interesting that here's a measuring device in the hand of Zerubbabel. 
These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Remember that these two witnesses are called the two olive trees in Revelation 11 and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So here we have it in the Old Testament. What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 11, taking what we have there. So is this literally Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, the political ruler of the, after the exile? No, I think that what we have here in, <clears throat> in Revelation 11 is that these are the sort of men, these are the sort of men that these two witnesses represent. They represent the prophetic religious voice. They represent the wise, God-governed, political, civil voice of people like Joshua and Zerubbabel. People like Moses and Elijah. Moses is primarily a lawgiver. Elijah is primarily recognized as a prophet. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, these two representative figures come and talk to him on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah. So I don't think that this is literally Moses and Elijah raised from the dead, but I think that this represents the testimony that God has given to Israel throughout the ages. What about these miracles that they do? Let's read verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Remember our scripture reading was from Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 14. When the Lord says, I have made your words of fire and the people of Israel are wood or stubble. So this represents the spoken word of God, especially in the sense of being a word of condemnation. So fire comes from their mouths, comes from the mouths of the prophets. What about verse 6? They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Who did that? Elijah. Elijah did. And you know how long he shut it for? Three and a half years. Elijah, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Who did that? Moses. And so I think that Moses and Elijah may be representative figures, but I don't think that the men literally came back in in the late days of Jerusalem to witness to the people. I think that this means the word of God was spread among the people of Israel. The word of God warned them. And uh, they came, bef- uh, the word of God was asserted. But notice next that the word of God was rejected. So it says in verse 7 And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Notice that it's when they have finished their testimony. Now, on the surface, that would say, They get the job completed. But then you dig a little bit deeper and it says the main responsibility of the law and the prophets of the Old Testament was finished 
Our primarily word for knowing the Lord Jesus Christ is the New Testament, not Moses and Elijah. We listen to Christ and the apostles. We value the Old Testament as the Word of God, but uh, it is primarily the, it is primarily finished. The Lord Jesus said it would not pass away until it all was fulfilled. Much of it had been fulfilled. Of course, that which is moral remains. But that which was civil and that which was ceremonial was abolished when their testimony was finished. And so they, they finished their testimony. The Old Testament era was over. They're conquered by the beast. I've just read from Daniel chapter 7 that the beast represents political rulers or political kingdoms. Just kind of file that away and we'll come back to that in the future, Lord willing. Uh, but they were despised. In Jerusalem, look at what it says. It says that, and their dead bodies, so they're killed, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Well, where was Jesus crucified? He was crucified in Jerusalem. And now look that Jerusalem, the holy city, has been transformed in a bad way into two of the worst places in the Bible, Sodom and Egypt. This were in the Old Testament, God makes a distinguishing between the city of Sodom and Gomorrah when he destroys them and the family of Abraham, Lot, which was delivered out of Sodom. But now Jerusalem has become the place that is going to be destroyed. When God rescued the family of Abraham out of Egypt, he brought them out of Egyptian bondage. But now Israel has become, Israel has become the place of bondage. The tables have been turned. And so these prophets are despised in Jerusalem. They have become Sodom and Egypt. I quoted earlier to you from Luke chapter 11, verses 49 and 50, how that the Lord Jesus said, the blood of all of the prophets from Abel all the way to Zechariah will be charged to this generation. And so I think that further strengthens my position that this represents the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament holy men who were used by God to help govern his people. People like Moses, people like David. So the word of God is asserted through these two witnesses. The word of God is rejected from these two witnesses and then the Word of God is vindicated when God raises them from the dead. But look at how that they despise and treat shamefully the, the prophets. It says in verse 9, For three and a half days, some, some from the peoples and tribes and languages, so three and a half days is just a very short while, from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So I think that this is just a, a story way of signifying the word of God that God sent faithfully and plainly to the people of Israel was not just rejected, but these prophets were shamefully treated. The word of God was treated despicably. But God venerates God vindicates his word when it says in verse 11, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet 
and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So these Old Testament prophets, though they were rejected by Jerusalem, though they were rejected by the world, they were owned by God and were vindicated in the eyes of their enemies. And then their enemies are judged by God. And so it says in verse 13, And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Really? Not a twentieth, not an eleventh, not a ninth, a tenth? Well, this is one of those numbers that has Old Testament significance. A tenth or a tithe doesn't, doesn't mean that that's all that belongs to God. It's an indication that everything belongs to God. And giving the Lord a tenth is acknowledgement of that fact. And so when it says that a tenth of the city fell, it means that the whole city was devoted over to destruction. And then what about the next phrase, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Not 7,001? Not 6,999? Again, a symbolic number. The number 7 is the number of completion, and the number 1,000 refers to multitudes. And so when 7,000, when it says that 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, then I think that means there was a great multitude that were killed in the earthquake. According to the historian Josephus, it was far more than 7,000. There were literal earthquakes that took place, terrible storms that took place. We can read about them in Josephus' history of this time period. But I don't think that all of this refers to literal things that happened I think that when the earthquakes, it's indication that the things that can be shaken are being shaken, and the things that cannot be shaken will remain forever. The rest of the people who were not killed in the earthquake were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. I don't think this means that they became converted. You can give glory to God of heaven when you recognize that He's the one who did it. Although I hope that some of them were converted. But as we've seen earlier... Woe in itself will not lead anyone to repentance. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So we've been in a period of pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, and now the seventh trumpet is sounded. So what happens when the seventh trumpet is sounded? I'll summarize it for you. The kingdom becomes worldwide. Before this, The kingdom had primarily been parochial. It had been localized. The woman at the well says to Jesus, You Jews say that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Our forefathers worshipped on this mountain. Which is it? And Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will those who worship God worship. For God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The time is coming when true religion will no longer be affixed to a geographical location. I think that's what we read about here. The kingdom becomes worldwide. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Remember back in Daniel chapter 7, we read about those four beasts that represented four kingdoms? And then, then there comes the Ancient of Days sitting on His throne, and one like a Son of Man comes, and a kingdom is given to Him that lasts forever and ever. 
That's what we're reading about right here. The Son of Man has come. The Ancient of Days confers the the worldwide kingdom on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's never going to end. He shall reign forever and ever. All the kingdoms of the, the Western Empire, the Babylonian kingdom, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the kingdom of the Grecians, the kingdom of the Romans, they all collapsed and fell. But during the days of the, the beast with the iron teeth and the toes that were mixed with clay and iron, the Roman Empire, then here comes this other kingdom headed up by the, headed up by the Son of Man received from the Ancient of Days. That's what's happening right here. Jesus receives the kingdom. And the saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament fall down and worship. Verse 16 says, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now, a couple of things that have to be explained there. For one thing, if this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, then why does it say that the time has come for the dead to be judged? Because we have already read about some dead people in the book of Revelation who had been unrighteously slain because they held to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And in chapter 6, verse 11 and following, we see them under the altar in, in heaven and they're crying out, How long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And now with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the Lord says, here comes the judgment that I promised you. Here comes the judgment that you prayed for. And so the dead were judged. We have a tendency to think of judgment as just being condemnation. But remember, measuring shows who is keeping the law as well as those who are disobeying the law. Measuring shows who the true princess is as well as those who are fake princesses. Measuring shows what are legal bass as well as what are illegal bass. So this judgment is a judgment that has unpleasant repercussions for the enemies of God, but it has pleasant consequences for those who are God's friends. The time has come for the dead to be judged. Not the final judgment, not the ultimate judgment at the end of the world, but this is a judgment at that time against those who had perpetrated persecution against the people of God that we read about in Revelation chapter 6. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The word earth there as often, almost inevitably, in the book of Revelation does not refer to the entire globe as we think of it, but the word is land, destroying the destroyers of the land. So this was a a localized punishment against Israel. It, in, it involved other, other nations, but I don't think that this was a, a worldwide destruction. But what happens next? Notice what happens next. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. Oh, I mean, even Steven Spielberg knows you're not supposed to look at the ark of the covenant. But here we go. Here here you can see what nobody else was allowed to see. Even when the high priest went into the most holy place, he was supposed to burn enough incense to cover up 
filled the Holy of Holies with a cloud so that he wouldn't see the Ark of the Covenant and die. Now what's happened? The veil of the temple has been torn in two. Now the centralized geographic location that limited the people of God to one geographic location has been destroyed. And what's the result? Now we can look and see the Ark of God's Covenant. You can see it within its temple. And this is so emphatic that God emphasizes it with flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Well, all of this takes place because of Jesus and His kingdom being established and those who were the enemies of Jesus being punished. That sort of thing has been happening throughout history since then. Sometimes the the people of God are persecuted severely and they look to God for vindication and for vengeance because it's not our place to take revenge against our enemies. And throughout history, God sometimes sends judgment upon the enemies of God. But ultimately, this is all going to take place on a worldwide scale when the Lord Jesus comes back in His glory. The Lord is faithful to His Word. It's pretty amazing when you look at uh, some of the prophecies that were made and how they were fulfilled in the three and a half years of Nero's persecution against the Christians, three and a half years of the siege against Jerusalem. Some of these things are so detailed that critics have sometimes said it must have been written after the fact. There's no way that someone could write this before the destruction of Jerusalem, but I believe, and I think that most of you also believe, that that God speaks His Word, and His Word is confirmed by the events that He predicts. We're getting ready to observe the Lord's Supper. 